Many countries have introduced punitive sanctions against Russia in an effort to put a stop to the war. We will limit Russia's ability to do business in dollars, euros, pounds, and yen. Russia's been hit by unprecedented sanctions by the West, which seems like a reasonable response to the unprecedented invasion of a sovereign nation in a modern post-Cold War world. Alexei's from Russia, and they explain what the situation's like there at the moment. Yeah, the price has changed, but it's not like a dramatic change like we had in the 90s. People in that time, they could not uh, buy anything. And now I see that people are still going into cafes, restaurants, work. The food uh, has become more expensive, but overall, it's not like devastating. So for ordinary people, it looks like the worst hasn't actually hit or even happened yet in Russia. That said, it's slightly telling that we can't actually use Alexei's real name and their voice has been distorted to keep them safe from repercussions. Every day I go to the office, it takes me one hour on this underground. And when I get out, I see Soviet big bus uh, library and uh, police bus also every day. And they get the documents from the people, check. So... Uh, it's kind of very calm, but still anxious, <laughs> nervous, and hopeless. It might be a bit frustrating to those who are sympathetic to the Ukrainians' cause that actually it doesn't sound like the situation in Russia is that different to what we're experiencing in the West. And actually sounds a bit better to what people are experiencing in places like Peru or Sri Lanka or Albania, where price rises have caused massive protests. That said, should the Russian people be suffering? What are the actual aims of these sanctions? And do sanctions even work? Is there any evidence that what the West is doing now will actually change anything on the ground in Ukraine? Welcome to Undercurrents, War in Ukraine, a special edition of Chatham House's podcast looking at the far-reaching impacts of the war. I'm Ned Sedgwick. Let's start with the basics. We've heard so much about these sanctions, but what are these sanctions and what impact are they having on Russia? Uh, my name is Creon Butler and I'm the director of the Global Economy and Finance Programme in Chatham House. Creon says that it will take some time for the full effect of these sanctions to be felt in Russia. That's the interesting thing in that initially there was uh, quite dramatic impacts on Russian financial markets. You know, the ruble fell dramatically, the stock exchange had to close and it appeared after four or five weeks that those changes had been mitigated to some degree. So the ruble recovered to the level it was before Russia's attack began. However, if you look at various estimates of what it will mean for Russian GDP, the net actions taken so far, you can see estimates of uh, between 10 and 15% fall in Russian GDP this year alone. And that's before you get, if you like, the longer term consequences of for example, Germany and Europe cutting back very substantially on imports of uh, Russian hydrocarbons, not necessarily immediately, but over the longer term. Now, what that means in terms uh, of uh, losses to Russian citizens, there are all kinds of things that they are restricted from doing in terms of traveling overseas. Uh, for example, Russian airlines have been banned from various Western countries. But I think the real effects will take time to come through. The most obvious things in terms of goods that they can't access now, higher prices for things that previously might have been supplied in a straightforward way are now more difficult to get or have to be applied uh, locally. But I think the full effects will, will take time to feed through. 
So walk me through the actual sanctions imposed on Russia. I guess the th- key thing about the sanctions is that it's an unprecedented package of measures, which really falls into three categories. Firstly, there are the sanctions that are designed to block financial transactions with Russia. And the most important of that is uh, freezing of the central bank's assets, blocking the transactions with the central bank. I mean, there are a number of other aspects of that as well, including uh, excluding a number of banks from from the SWIFT uh, messaging system for payments and also freezing assets of some of the individual commercial and public banks. Second thing is around sanctions on individual very wealthy, what's normally known as Russian kleptocrats. There were already a number of sanctions against certain people, but these have been stepped up to a far greater extent. And then the third area is around blocking transactions by Russian companies with international markets for goods and services. And that's both things that Russia would normally sell into those markets, but also Russia's ability to buy certain kinds of technology and so on from those markets. And how do these sanctions differ from those put on Russia after 2014, after the annexation of Crimea? The, the approach taken is, is essentially, if not now, when? Given the extent of uh, President Putin's actions against Ukraine, a sovereign country where he's basically attacked it in completely unprovoked action and, and essentially undermined the entire kind of security structure built up since the Second World War, the West's response is to say, we need to throw everything at this. And so freezing the central bank assets is something that was never even contemplated during the 2014 experience. Why are sanctions seen by the West as an effective tool to deal with Russian aggression? Well, I think the key thing is that the West is not using sanctions on their own. Sanctions are being deployed alongside very substantial military support and financial support for for Ukraine. There's also the broader context, the longer term context. As you know, Ukraine has applied to to be a member of the European Union. If Ukraine were to join the European Union in the short term, it could be very expensive, certainly for the European Union. But in the longer term, it could be a very strong partner, particularly because as a result of this this awful conflict, many of the the internal issues in Ukraine may well be worked through in terms of the, the influence on Ukrainian politics of oligarchs and things of that kind. So I think those are the three elements. It's not just sanctions on its own. It's sanctions alongside military support and holding out that prospect of a longer term future. I think the other thing is the alternative was not one that the West was willing to contemplate, which would have been either just accept what uh, President Putin had done and say, well, actually, there's nothing we can do about it. We accept a complete change in the global security environment and we're going to we're willing to work with it in a different way or military intervention by nato within within the territory of ukraine which would have been much more risky in terms of the potential consequences for for global security have there been any unexpected impacts from these sanctions any knock on effects that the west probably didn't anticipate there've clearly been effects in terms of rise in commodity prices rise in food prices for anybody who thought through the extent of the sanctions, I don't think anybody would have said, no, these, these are not likely to happen. There's also been impacts clearly on, on growth prospects across the world, but particularly in the countries that are very close to Russia and, and within the European Union. But I, I mean, firstly, I would say that one should always remember the cause of this is Russia's aggression against Ukraine. <laughs> this is not, you know, something that the West has brought to bear out of its own choice. They're looking for a response to the most unprecedented action by Russia. And these effects, I think you could have seen what they would have been given the nature of the sanctions that were applied. 
there are an awful lot of countries which are have taken a very deliberately neutral stance on this conflict, but these knock-on effects of the sanctions will affect them whether they want it to or not. Is there a chance that might cause anti-Western resentment? I think if you look at different countries, they're responding for different reasons. So India is currently very dependent on Russia for arms supplies. And so in those circumstances, you can see why India might not want to take a strong position on this kind of dispute. The world breaks down into countries which are very clearly backing the Western approach. There are countries which politically sympathize with what the West is doing, but are not actually taking economic steps. And then there are countries that are, if you like, leaning in Russia's direction. There's only, I think, a relatively small number of countries which are kind of proactively trying to help Russia deal with deal with the sanctions that it's facing. It's a judgment at the moment. I think I don't detect that people are saying, look, the West is to blame for rising food and energy prices rather than the, the, the causes directly from uh, the action that Russia took in the first place. I don't see that at the present time. But it's very important in a way that, that the West maintains a very clear description of the actions it's taken and why it's taken them in response to Russia's initial aggression. So it's obvious that the West is trying to hit Russia with everything it's got when it comes to these sanctions. And according to Christine McDaniel from the Mercator Center at George Mason University, sanctions like these are unprecedented in modern history. We've never seen this happen with a country as large as Russia, as integrated into the world economy and as important to the energy sector as Russia, be the subject of such vast sanctions by you know, nearly all, all of the West. And I, we've never seen sanctions against such a large country where the West was cooperating to the extent it is, and they're targeted to the extent they're targeted, right? And that is only because of the the cooperation and the intelligence sharing among the Western countries that we're seeing today. Can you think of many examples of a strict sanction regime achieving the aim of the country? So Iran is kind of the most famous. Myanmar had very strict sanctions on it. Would you say they were effective in achieving the goals of the countries that impose those sanctions? I think it's important to define effective, right? What does it mean for a sanction to be successful? So I was talking to a former state chief economist, and she says, policymakers want a slam dunk. They want sanctions that will change the behavior of the target country. But those are hard to come by in the absence of harsh military action. So in many cases, the best the sanctions can do is to make the target country pay, right? Make it costly for them to continue that behavior. But it's South Africa. Remember the apartheid. The U.S. did that comprehensive anti-apartheid act. The U.N. had the arms embargo. OPEC had the oil embargo. Each action was sort of like Swiss cheese, right? It, it, each action had holes in it, but there were, they kept piling up on each other. And over time, you, know, you could argue that the sanctions you know, did contribute to the eventual regime change. So when sanctions work best in history? Huffbauer, Elliott, and Schott did this great study in the early 90s. And one, uh, they found that sanctions tend to be more effective when the goal is modest, 
right? So for instance, like winning release of a p- political prisoner, right? Rather than, you know, stopping a huge country from doing something really, really bad that it has wanted to do anyway, for instance. They also work better when the target country is small, the, the economy is pretty weak, they're politically pretty unstable, and then also when the target and the sender have a pretty strong trade re- relationship, right? So in those cases where sanctions were successful, the sender of the sanctions accounted for almost a third of the target's trade. Sanctions also tend to be more effective when they're hard and fast, you know, when they're imposed quickly and decisively and by many other countries around the world in concert, right, acting in a, in a cooperative manner. But the longer they go on, the weaker they tend to, to get, right? So the longer the sanctions go on, the more likely it is that the target country can figure out ways around the sanctions. It's kind of emerging that mass sanctions are a pretty tricky thing to get right, to have a concrete effect. What do you think about targeted sanctions? So a few years ago, the Office of the Chief Economist in the U.S. State Department, they wrote a paper on the effectiveness of so-called smart sanctions or targeted sanctions, sanctions against Russia in 2014. And they found that the firms that were sanctioned, you know, targeted, that they had significant losses in operating revenue, asset values, and employees compared to their peers that were not sanctioned. So in that sense, targeted sanctions work. Did they stop Russia from their unsavory actions? Did they deter Russia from doing it again? Well, you know, that's a different question. So it seems that sanctions have a patchy recent history at best, especially 2014. The sanctions that were imposed on Russia by the West did nothing to stop the current situation. But these new set of sanctions are, seem to be so unprecedented that they might actually make a difference. Who better than Bill Browder, sanctions superstar, to answer that question? Bill Browder was a main foreign investor in Russia before being chased out of the country by Putin's regime. He's since dedicated his life to getting targeted sanctions imposed on that regime. He says that Vladimir Putin has pretty deep pockets, despite all these sanctions. He started this whole war with what he thought was a big war chest, literally a war chest. He had a $640 billion war chest of central bank reserves that he had accumulated from the sale of oil and gas and various other exports from the country. And all of a sudden, when the war started, he discovered that 60% of that was frozen. The Western countries had frozen that money. Now, of course, he has other ways of getting money. He's a very wealthy man. I estimate that he's worth well north of $200 billion. And that money is held through oligarch trustees. And so in theory, he could have gotten access to some of that money. But that's also being constrained because the oligarchs, some of them, not all of them, Some of them have been sanctioned. Hard to know exactly how much money is no longer available to him, but that that certainly a lot. But the problem is that even with all of these sanctions, you still have between 500 million and a billion dollars a day of new money coming into Russia through the sale of oil and gas to Germany, Italy, Austria, etc. The cost of the war is probably a billion dollars a day. And 
you know, roughly a billion dollars a day comes into from the sale of oil and gas. And so in a sense, it's kind of a wash. Now, Russia has other expenses other than the war. And so it is troublesome for them to, to have these all this money tied up. And, and, and on, on top of that, they have no longer the ability to borrow money from the Western capital markets. And so it would be crazy to say that these, these sanctions don't have an effect on Vladimir Putin. He's trying to play tough and say, everything is fine. But he's in, in pretty deep trouble economically right now. Are you saying that to an extent, Putin, when we sanction the oligarchs close to him, he essentially can pay for the war out of his own pocket? I mean, everybody would prefer to go to dinner on the expense account, on the company expense account, than to pay for your own dinner. But if, if, if need be, I think that he would draw on his own money or draw on the oligarchs' money and just demand that they bring money back to pay for the war. If that money is not available, it's just less resources available to pay for this war. And and you know, people often ask me, you know, are sanctions going to make him change his ways? Is he going to change his mind? Is he going to withdraw from Ukraine because of the sanctions? And and that, and that's totally unrealistic and not going to happen. Putin is a a man who can't show any kind of weakness. He can't compromise. He doesn't, you know, once he starts something, he's got to finish it. If we had done sanctions before he had gone into Ukraine, he might have made a different calculation because he was always assuming that these sanctions, we would never get together with our allies and actually get serious about sanctions. We've never had before. We've always, you know, to the extent that we ever did any sanctions, we, we always wanted to be seen to be doing something, but not actually doing anything. And um, this is the first time we've actually done something, which is a surprise to Putin, surprise to me as well. I, 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 uh, couldn't imagine that the West would be, you know, broad-minded enough and not so narrowly financially interested um, to do what what's been done so far. If Putin won't back down, what does success look like to the Western governments imposing these sanctions? Is it regime change? Obviously, Biden did mention that very controversially, but is that the only option that these sanctions can lead to, or is it just to be seen to be doing something? I think there's something in between those two things. I don't think it's realistic to call for regime change, and and I don't think that these sanctions are just to be seeming to do something. I think the main objective of the sanctions at this point are to basically cut off Putin's financial capacity to do terrible things. And if we so degrade his his finances, then he won't be able to conduct the war in the way he's doing it right now. And for a country as rich as Russia, even when, when we've frozen a whole bunch of their central bank reserves, they still have a lot of gold reserves and they still have a lot of Chinese currency. It's not as if they're out of money, but they hopefully will be having less money going forward. And, and the more we can economically encircle Russia and prevent money from coming in and prevent them from accessing the money they have, the more likely it is that, that the um, war becomes less affordable to them. And and maybe, you know, I don't think he's going <clears> to <throat> say, I'm not going to do war because I can't afford it. But he might say, I'm not going to do these seven things because I, I can only do two. And five of those things that he might have done might have been killing a lot of people that he's not going to kill any, any further. So in a way, it might be difficult to sell a success because we'll be selling what he hasn't done. And so looking at the concrete impact might be quite tricky for Western governments if they want to continue 
these sanction regimes, which are actually hitting the West quite hard. It's very interesting. I, I, I remember after 2014, when Russia um, seized Crimea, and they imposed a bunch of sanctions, which are in the category of wanting to be seen to do something without actually doing anything. The sanctions were not very onerous. They like picked a, a thousand Russian separatists out of the phone book and put them on the sanctions list and, you know, thumped their chest and declared victory. And I was visiting with the um, with some officials in the European Union after that, and they said something so stupid to me that I, I, I'll never forget it. They, they were saying, well, you know, our view of sanctions is that they should change behavior. And Russia hasn't changed their behavior. And so, you know, there's some logic to removing the sanctions. <laughs> and and I, I, I mean, I literally wanted to like slap the guy in the face and say, do you realize how stupid that sounds? I mean, it's just, uh, it's like almost like childish. And so um, the one thing I can tell you is that we're not going to end up withdrawing sanctions against Russia for one simple reason, because Putin is going to be escalating this war and doing terrible things and making, you know, no matter how much of an apologist there is out there, no matter how much people care about whatever the economic costs are, it's going to be morally unacceptable to reduce the sanctions. You talk about the oil and gas payments as being this kind of loophole in Western sanctions, this this blank spot. Do you have any hope that the West will become more unified and countries like Germany, Austria, Italy that you mentioned earlier might try and actually make concrete steps towards weaning themselves of Russian gas? Well, I mean, it's it's really not a question of unification because, you know, here we are in the UK, only 3% of our oil comes from Russia, whereas much greater percentage comes to Germany. And so what we're asking certain countries to do is take a big economic hit to do the right thing. And I think some of these countries will for their own self-interest, because as the war gets more and more and more ugly, the Germans can, can start to imagine that if the next stop after... Uh, after Ukraine is Poland, then the next stop after Poland is Germany. It becomes much more real for them. Will, will we be able to stop the sale of or the purchase of oil and gas from Russia in, in its entirety? I, I don't think so. Will we be able to do it on the margin? And I say we, will the Germans and the Italians be able to do it on the margin? I think yes. So I, I, I would imagine that we will see that number being reduced. And, and that number will be very painful for Russia because you know, with all the other things that we described, the central bank reserves, the the oligarch money, and the lack of capital markets access, this could become problematic for, for these guys. You've made it very clear that Putin is being isolated by these sanctions. And you also made it very clear that he doesn't back down. There is this threat, though, of nuclear war, that the more we push him, the closer he gets to pressing that button. Do you think that's a good argument against these incredibly harsh sanctioned regimes, that there is a threat of nuclear war? Well, this assumes that Putin is not going to threaten nuclear war if he um, defeats Ukraine. In, in my analysis of Putin, he is a prison yard bully. Anytime he starts a fight, he wants to eviscerate his opponent. If he's ready to, to use nuclear weapons if he's defeated, he'll also use nuclear weapons if he wins. And so I don't think that we should be tiptoeing around him. We're in a situation where he's like sending off, you know, testing missiles and doing all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's there's a much higher probability of nuclear war now than there ever was because of, you know, you have a criminal with with his 
finger on the nuclear button. So what's your personal hope with all this? What's your ideal situation that these sanctions can lead to? My personal hope, and the only hope, the only thing that we can really hope for, is a decisive win, military win, by Ukraine against Russia. So Russia can't conduct this war anymore and can't threaten anybody else because they've been beaten. If that happens, Putin will lose power and then we'll be in a whole new ball game. In order for that to happen, there's two things that need to happen. One is we need to supply the Ukrainians with every bit of military hardware they're at, they ask for so they can actually have a decent chance of fighting off the Russians and defeating them. And the second is we need to do everything possible to make sure that the Russians don't have the resources on their side, which is um, cutting them off at the knees economically wherever we can. The better we can do on both those sides, the more likely it is the Ukrainians can win. And if the Ukrainians win, um, the more likely that this whole thing comes to an end. I started this episode pretty doubtful that sanctions actually would have any positive impact. They haven't really seemed to work anywhere over the last 20, 30 years. As it's gone on, I've realized that actually their efficacy will be felt in an invisible way by preventing things that could happen. What Western governments really need to do is translate this to their own populations and to the wider world. As bad as things are now, things can get worse. And the only way of preventing that is trying to end the war as quickly as possible. One of the only tools in their arsenal they can use without escalating the conflict is sanctions. So even though the impact might be invisible, it is incumbent on them to use it. However, it's also clear that the elephant in the room, of course, is oil and gas. The oil and gas revenues alone could help Putin pay for this war for the foreseeable future. So I really want to understand why the West is willing to carry on paying for this. So next week, we'll be speaking about the EU's dependence on Russian oil and gas. Thank you for listening to this episode of Undercurrents, War in Ukraine. And thank you to Creon Butler, Christine McDaniel and Bill Browder for talking to us. If you want to learn more about what's going on in Ukraine, head to Chatham House's website, chathamhouse.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this issue and what aspects you want us to cover next. You can find us on all social media at Chatham House. I've been your host, Ned Sedgwick. The producer is Anouk Mie from Earshot Strategies with help from David Dargahi. And thanks also to Alistair Burnett at Chatham House.